Disasters, True Stories, narrated by Brad Carty. The Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Plant, a human catastrophe. Located on the Pacific Ring of Fire, at the junction of the Eurasian, Pacific, Philippine, and Okosh tectonic plants, Japan has always been exposed to high seismic activity. Every year, thousands of tremors are felt, ranging from 4 to 7 on the Richter scale. Most of them are hardly noticeable, but the most violent ones bring with them devastating tsunamis. The 20th century was marked by the Sanriku earthquake in 1933, magnitude 8.4, and its tidal wave which took 3,000 victims. Nearly 10 years later, the Mikawa earthquake, 7.1 on the Richter scale, 1,961 dead. The list is long, so long that the tragedy has become part of the culture of the archipelago. In Japanese, they call a serious nuclear accident caused by an earthquake, Genpatsu Shinsai. The term was coined after 2007, when the Chuetsuki earthquake rocked one of the world's largest nuclear power plants, Kashiwazaki Kaliwa. Four years later, the tragedy at Fukushima Daiichi could also be called Genpatsu Shinsai, an earthquake the strongest ever recorded in Japan rocked a nuclear power plant. However, a report written by the Parliament and published one year later delivered a surprising conclusion. According to them, the disaster was indeed human. At 2.46 p.m. on this Friday, March 11, 2011, the earth of Japan begins to rumble. The roads along the coastline cracked, the most precarious housing collapsed. The tremors are felt as far as the center of the archipelago, in Tokyo, where skyscrapers are shaking. After the first tremor, recorded at 9 on the Richter scale, a second one took over a few minutes later, then an aftershock every seven minutes. Seismographers locate the epicenter 75 miles offshore, in the depths of the ocean. Under the Earth's crust, the Pacific Plate battles with the Eurasian Plate, which finally gives way and opens a gaping pit stretching over 60 miles. The water is sucked in and then propelled, a phenomenon that creates a gigantic tidal wave. The mountain of foam, over 30 feet high, hurtles at more than 300 miles per hour towards the east coast of Japan. The impact was expected in 10 minutes, and at 1546, the tsunami alert was launched by all television channels. In the countryside, in the cities, a noisy and plaintive alarm resounded tirelessly and enjoined the inhabitants to take refuge in the hills. The wave crashed violently, taking with it ships, plantations, houses, and their occupants, sinking more than six miles into the interior of the land. No border remained between the wave and the sea. Nearly 400 miles of coastline were affected. Hundreds of villages were destroyed. 8,600 people died. 2,600 were injured, and 13,000 disappeared. The survivors, and there were some, were gathered in gymnasiums, each structure sheltering 2,500 victims. Call centers were set up to provide information to families looking for loved ones. 
Local businesses donated food, equipment, clothing, while waiting for the government to bring help, which was itself bogged down, as a second crisis loomed on the horizon. In the northeast of Japan, on the seafront, stands the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and its six reactors, in the front line when the tidal wave broke. Although it is protected by a 16-foot dike, it was a mere mouthful for the wave, three times as high. In the past, there was talk of raising this wall, but the owner, the multinational TEPCO, did not consider it urgent to do so, nor did it receive any pressure from the authorities. This is the first of a long series of errors and approximations to which we must return. In the meantime, the tsunami hit the power plant, which had been emptied of its 6,000 employees, with full force. Only a hundred or so executives, huddled in an earthquake-proof bunker, had been ordered to hold the command post. The situation was not very reassuring. The installation was completely submerged. The electricity sources were failing one after the other. There was no power, no cooling system. The uranium contained in the reactors could therefore continue to heat in complete peace and the temperature to climb relentlessly. In the bunker, the engineers were unable to find a solution, despite the constant exchanges with the TEPCO headquarters located in Tokyo, but also with Naoto Kan, the prime minister. All were helpless in the face of disaster. 6,000 miles away, in Paris, the IRSN, the Institute for Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety, was informed of the threat by Arriva employees deployed on the site shortly before the earthquake. The ghost of Chernobyl suddenly resurfaced. In 1986, the radioactive cloud had flown over all of Europe and stopped at the borders of France. On reflection, the state was much more concerned about the repercussions on the atomic market than about the dangers incurred by the population especially since it has 19 power plants on its territory, almost as many as Japan. Neither EDF nor Arriva want to see their stock prices fall. So the decision was taken to focus communication on the tsunami and to minimize as much as possible the accident that was taking place on the Japanese islands. In reality, the situation only got worse. Six hours after the tsunami, the temperature in reactor number one reached 2,800 degrees Celsius. The uranium was now a pile of magma, spreading toxic gases. Priority was given to restoring power in order to cool the fuel inside the tank. Trucks containing generators were sent from other nearby nuclear sites, but severely damaged roads hindered their progress. Change of plan. It was decided the next morning to release the gases contained in the reactor in order to avoid an explosion. A suicide mission was set up. Two liquidators had 17 minutes to reach the valves. Slowed down by the rubble, they were forced to give up a few yards from their objective, while the soles of their boots melted on contact with the irradiated ground. Another pair was sent four hours later, and this time managed to reach the reactor. The maneuver dispersed white, highly radioactive smoke into the atmosphere. All the towns located within a radius of six, then a dozen miles, were evacuated. 80,000 inhabitants left everything behind and joined the shelters, already crammed with tsunami victims.
It was March 12th at 3.36 p.m. In reactor number one, the accumulated hydrogen comes into contact with the oxygen in the air and an explosion blows the roof off the structure. The images are broadcast throughout the country. The control room of Fukushima has barely had time to react when reactor number three now demanded help. Its auxiliary generators had given up the ghost, and a second explosion was very possible. The firemen who arrived as reinforcements wanted to bring water from the sea and irrigate the sensitive area, but the high level of radiation in the vicinity of the reactor forced a retreat. In any case, it was already too late. The meltdown had begun. On March 14th, the wind blew the clouds from the north and a radioactive rain fell on Tokyo. Desperate, the Japanese Prime Minister thought of evacuating the capital and its 35 million inhabitants, then changed his mind. The necessary means are simply impossible to gather so quickly. At 11.01 a.m., reactor number three explodes in its turn. Its molten fuel spills into the underground, and the next day, reactor number two follows suit. At this point, TEPCO is close to abandoning ship. Their momentum was interrupted by Nayato Kan, who went to the site and ordered that a team be present at the location 24 hours a day. They will be called the 50 of Fukushima, composed of the oldest employees or those who have no companion or child. Every day they will work in the heart of a hostile environment, progress through the buildings of a power plant plunged into darkness, and sleep on the floor wrapped in blankets made of lead. Of those who remained on the front line, 17 will be contaminated beyond the reasonable threshold. As of 2021, however, no deaths have yet occurred, as cancers take a long time to develop. The 50 were quickly joined by firemen and soldiers, elite units sent as a last resort to save what still could be saved. On the ground, fire hoses sprayed the reactors day and night while helicopters dropped tons and tons of water from a height of 90 meters. At the same time, technicians were risking their lives to restore the power supply and restart the cooling systems. After a week of improvisation, hazardous choices, and human errors, the situation was finally under control. Today, the temperature and radiation levels continue to slowly decline in Fukushima, which is far from being out of the woods. Its surroundings remain uninhabitable, agriculture is banned, and millions of tons of contaminated water and radioactive waste still need to be treated. The final outcome? Although no deaths or adverse health effects on the inhabitants of the region have been reported to date, the dismantling of the plant is estimated to take 40 years. The cost of decommissioning and compensation is estimated to be the equivalent of 172 billion euros. From a European perspective, the prospect of reliving the Chernobyl tragedy has not been without consequences. In Germany, the accident precipitated the withdrawal from civil nuclear power. In France, six months after the accident, all 19 sites in the country were inspected. And then, with time, the nuclear market resumed as if nothing had happened. A sad fact, which highlights the dangerous dependence that mankind has on nuclear power. The debates will always be the same, one worries, based on the ultimate question. If from one day to the next, 
all the nuclear power plants in the world were to close, what energy would be able to replace them? Did you like this episode? Feel free to comment, share, and rate it. See you soon for new stories. Midnight Studio, addictive podcast creator.